So just to let you know kind of what we're going to be talking about today, we've been in this series for the last three previous weeks called We Are Family. That's why you see that on the front of your program. Um, You see it on the screen behind me. And the reason we're saying that and talking about this is because we've, we've been saying, look, the church was always meant to be a family of brothers and sisters, children of God. Like, here's the thing. Maybe you growing up like me, the church was just a place to go, a service to attend, a charitable organization, an institution. But the Bible seems to say what God desires is for the church to be a family of people who are displaying who he is and his love to one another. We said that, listen, God invites us to be a part of his family as his children, Like, that's why Jesus, he sent Jesus to die, to make us children of God. And then he invites us to be brothers and sisters with other people who follow Jesus. And then we, 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 what we do together is we gather together and we, 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 we belong to one another and, and, and we become more like Jesus. We help each other grow and then we serve one another. And today we're talking about the very important aspect of love, that we love one another. And it is, it is probably, I would say, one of the most crucial elements of being a healthy family. See, in the family that you may have grown up in, I, just, just raise your hand if your family growing up or your family right now is just a little dysfunctional. All right. Some of you, like the person beside you, is surprised that you raised your hand. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, the thing is, we live in a world of we live in a world of, of messed up families that sometimes are broken and fractured. And listen, that's why we need each other. It really is. And that's what the family of God is supposed to be. You see, the church is not like a family. The church is a family. At least that's what it's supposed to be. You've probably heard. Um, so today we're talking about this, this idea of love, that we love one another. And you've probably heard the old um, illustration of the woman who, in fact, I think I've shared it before, but the woman who goes to her husband and she says, honey, I just don't feel like you love me anymore. It's been such a long time. I don't even remember the last time you told me you love me. And he looks at her and he says, sweetie, I told you on our wedding day 30 years ago that I loved you. And if anything ever changes, I'll let you know. Most of you don't think that's funny. and That's okay. Because it's not really funny, because that's not how love is supposed to work, right? I mean, love is not just something you say. It's not just something you feel. It's something you do. Like our world tells us, I mean, we grow up thinking that love is just something I fall into. It's, It's not. Like, there are feelings that can be connected to it, but some days you don't feel like loving people. And some days you don't feel very lovable. And some days I'm not very lovable. But love is this thing where you say, I've made a choice to do something, not just to say something, but to do something that demonstrates that I'm for you, that I'm with you, that I've got you, that I forgive you, that I serve you, that I stand with you. That's what love is. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, turn over to Romans chapter 12, um, because this is the chapter of the Bible we've been spending time in during this series. This is a recipe, what Paul is writing to the Christians at the, in the new church in Rome, is he's writing kind of a recipe for what the church ought to be, what the church ought to look like. And so this is why we're spending time in this, this chapter in Romans 12. Um, and you can always go to the, the 
YouVersion Bible app in the App Store and download it if you don't have it. And look under Events, and you will always find our message notes there in the Events section if you search for Church at Cane Bay. So, so Paul is going to tell us how love happens in a family, in his family. So look at verse 9 of Romans chapter 12. It says this, let love be genuine. Now stop right there because that, that's all I want to talk about for just a second. Let love be genuine. Now in the what I just read to you, what this verse is on the screen right here is from the English Standard Version, the ESV, and we often use the ESV. But in the New Living Translation, the NLT, it translates it slightly different. It says, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. That's what genuine love is, right? Let your love be genuine. Why does Paul have to remind us, the children of God, brothers and sisters of each other, the church, we are the church. Why does he have to remind us how to love? To, to love each other in a genuine way. Because here's the deal. In the world we live in, in the families we grew up in, maybe love was distorted in some ways. Maybe, maybe love in our world can be fake and manufactured and false and pretend sometimes. Sometimes love is just lust. Sometimes love is just a feeling. Sometimes love is just words. Real love, God's love, is, is unselfish. It's kind, it's giving, it's unconditional. It's, it's, it's these things. And so Paul says love in a genuine way, that our love has to be real. You know why? Because the world around us is starving for that kind of love, right? Your neighbor, your family members, you are starving for that kind of love. I think our world is dying to be loved like God loves them, where love is shown and not just said. You know, this past Monday, we celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. Day as a, as a nation, and he was quite a man, and um, he was a follower of Jesus, and it drove him to to love and live in a different way, and he called people to it. And one of the, one, you probably saw many quotes this past week posted um, online from Dr. King. And one of my favorites is, is this. He just says this, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. See, he understood something that love is an incredibly powerful thing, more powerful than any violence, more powerful than any hatred. He understood that love was the thing that would really overcome injustice and hatred and wrong. He, he understood that. And he understood that because he knew where love came from. He knew that love came from God and God is the inventor of it, and the author of it. God is love. And he calls us to love. But I want you to look at the next phrase that Paul writes. So he says, let love be genuine. And then look what he says. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Now, that's very important, and it's interesting that he partnered this with love. He says, love genuinely, but hate what is evil. How can you love and hate at the same time? You see, I believe this, that if you and I genuinely love people, if we genuinely love each other, then we will hate anything that deceives, disrupts, distracts or discourages 
those people from the design and the desires that God has for them. See, you will hate, if you love someone, you hate anything that hurts or holds them back from what God wants for them. Love, listen, love says, I hate anything that is against you and anything that disrupts God's plan for you. Love doesn't overlook the truth. In fact, love tells the truth to people. Have you ever heard the old adage that um, how much do you have to hate someone to withhold the truth? Like, listen, we have a responsibility that love doesn't overlook the truth. Love doesn't let people live in lies. Love says, look, I'm going to call out what's wrong. I'm going to hate what's wrong. I'm going to hate the sin and the evil that, 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 that pollutes people's lives. But we have to be careful with this. We have to be really careful with this. Why? Because you've probably heard people say before, hate the sin and love the sinner. How many of you heard that, that saying? But here's, I understand where that comes from, but we have to be very careful with that because we are called to hate sin because sin hurts people and holds them back from what God wants. It affects people. But here's what I believe. The church is good at hating sin sometimes, but we ought to hate our sin just more than we hate other people's sin. Are you with me? Like, like seriously, what, what Paul is calling us to do here is, is hate the sin and evil in the world. And some of that sin and evil resides in my heart. And I have to recognize that way before I point out my brother's sin. Does that make sense? That, listen, listen. And also, let me just tell you this, in our hatred of evil and sin, it's not just about hating immoral living that people who don't follow Jesus live that way. Listen, I don't understand why we get so hung up on that. It's about hating. It's about hating injustice. It's about hating hypocrisy that happens within our own lives. It's about hating when Christians condemn or exclude other people. It's okay to hate sin, but truly hating sin means being repulsed by sin in all forms, including our own lives. Any sin that disrupts, discredits, devalues, distracts. Then look at what Paul says. He says, not only do we hate sin and evil, do we abhor it, but we hold tight to what is good. Do you see that? We hold fast to what is good. You see that? You know what I believe this looks like? It's not okay to just hate what's evil. But we have to hold on to what's good. It's that we have to cling to what's good. We have to love what's good. We have to cheer for and celebrate and point to what's good, not just what's bad, but point to and hang on to be radically committed to what's good. Here's here's just just an idea. Maybe cling to what's good looks less like being better than other people and more like wrapping our arms around other people who are affected by sin and evil in the world. Maybe that's what clinging to what's good really looks like. Look at verse 10. Paul says, he says, he goes on to illustrate this love more. He says, love each other with brotherly affection. So this is what genuine love looks like. It looks like brotherly kind of affection. Here's this family word again, that we're to love each other like brothers and sisters. When I was growing up, um, my brother and I would fight a lot. Sometimes I'm sure it worried my mom that we were enemies. But the truth is, if somebody spoke a word against my brother, my little brother, it's like a switch was flipped in me. And I was like, you can say anything you want about me, but you cannot say something about my little brother. Why? Because now it doesn't always work like that, but 
That's the way brothers are supposed to look out for each other and love each other. And Paul says, Paul says that we're to love each other with this brotherly kind of affection. That you and I are brothers and sisters. And we're supposed to have each other's backs. We're supposed to defend each other. We're supposed to love each other. Now, let me give you just a quick little video example of this, a little visual of kind of what this might look like a little bit from the movie Coach Carter. Um, just, just take a look at this and watch this kind of brotherly kind of love. Watch this. So get some rest tonight. Remember, ties and jackets tomorrow. Clay. Mr. Cruz, I'm impressed with what you've done, but you came up short. You owe me 80 suicides and 500 push-ups. Please leave my gym. Thanks, Clyde. Gentlemen, see you tomorrow. I'll do push-ups for him. said we're a team. One person struggles, we all struggle. One player triumphs, we all triumph, right? I'll do some. I'll run suicides too. So, we're a team. One struggles, we all struggle. Um, One triumphs, we all triumph. See, I think that's what brotherly love, that's what a band of brothers looks like, right? That's what a, a healthy team looks like. That's what a healthy family looks like. That's how we love each other is we demonstrate it. We don't just say it. We demonstrate it. Now, Paul goes on to tell us, gives us kind of the way to do this, the way to demonstrate it. And he gives us some statements, some short statements. And I'm going to give you those. We're going to read those verses. And then I'm going to give you 10 B statements that go along with these verses. And the reason I'm doing this is I think we we need like a list. We need like a list. And so we're going to take these verses. We're going to pull out the things. Now, I actually gave this same list a year ago. And so I look back and go, why are we doing this again? And I thought, this is, God just put this, this is the passage of scripture we're in. And I go, this is what God wants us to be as a church. Now, here's, here's why I say that. Listen, I believe God does not want his children just to go to church. Like, stop going to church. Like, God wants his children to be the church. 
to be it. Now, we do go to church, so we gather together and remind each other of this, so it is important. But we need to be the church. And so this is a list of what we ought to be, not just Sunday, but Monday through Saturday. So look at what he says at the end of verse 10. Paul says this, outdo one another in showing honor. This is how we love, is we outdo each other in honoring each other. So the B word here is, I, I just put be encouraging or be honoring. Here, the normal human urge is this. Think, think about you and me for just a second. We live in this world where I know we, we don't want to admit it, but often we want to be honored. We want to receive the applause and the attention oftentimes. But what if we sought to honor each other like it's a competition? You see that? Outdo one another? Like, what if that's what we competed at, is honoring each other? Like, what if we lifted other people up instead of ourselves? Like, we pointed to other people instead of ourselves. That would look different from the rest of the world. That's what God's family ought to look like when we love each other. Look at what he says in verse 11. Paul says, do not be slothful in zeal or lazy in zeal and passion, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. The B statement here is just be eager to serve, to serve God and serve one another. When the normal human urge, listen, in our world, what is the normal human urge? For me to be served. Serve me. And yet Jesus calls us, what Paul is calling us to, is to be people who serve others, whether we We were excited to give our lives away for God to use to impact other people. Be eager to serve. Look at verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. There's three things that Paul says right here. The first is rejoice in hope, that we're to be joyful. Now, listen. Listen for just a second. In a world that is condemning or negative or complaining, how many of you are on your neighborhood Facebook pages? Anybody? Okay, boy, that was a quick hand raise there. Like, we know, we know that the world is full of negativity, right, and complaining. And, and, and what, but what if God's people, what if God's family was different? What if we expressed joy? We were hopeful and joyful because we're called to something higher. People would see something different in us. What if we were patient? This second thing Paul says, be patient in tribulation. Listen, life is hard. Listen, I realize that, that this world is full of sin and evil and life is tough and and sometimes we're dealt cards that we didn't expect and God takes us through things that we didn't expect or plan on. And when life is hard, in a world that gives up or gets angry, what if we were quietly patient, trusting God? That would look different. Be constant in prayer, Paul says. You know, I think about in a world that's fearful and worried and stressed about life. What if we spent more time talking to God than Googling or gossiping? And what if we spent more time connecting to God than just connecting to our devices? What if we spent time with God praying and talking to him? Then it changes our perspective. It changes how we react to people. It changes how we live. Paul goes on to say in verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. Look at what Paul says there in 13. He's talking about giving what we have. Contributing and showing hospitality. He's talking about using our homes, our stuff, our resources, our time. 
for other people. He's talking about being generous. Just be generous. This is what it looks like to love people, is to be generous with what we have. In a world that says what's mine is mine, what if we, the family of God, says what's mine is yours? I know that's crazy. That's what it looks like to be a part of this family, God's family. Look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. The B word here that I used is just be kind. Be kind. Even to our enemies, Jesus called us to do this because there's a world around us that says, Pay people back. Get even. I remember the first time I had an enemy or I knew that I had an enemy as a young kid. I remember going home and telling my dad about it. And like a dad that cared for his son, he goes, well, I'm going to teach you how to punch him in the nose. And I thought, okay. But here's here's the thing. We all have felt like that, dads, haven't we? But here's the thing. Jesus calls us to something radically different from that. Why? Because what? What he's displaying and demonstrating in our lives is that we're to bless those who persecute us, who are against us. I mean, Jesus teaches us how to bless and not curse. And and I'm just telling you that, that love covers a multitude of sins. It is an amazing thing. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. This is just being there with people. Just be there in a world that leaves us alone or walks away. What if God's family showed up to celebrate when we celebrate and cry when we cry and just stand with us? Over the last few weeks in our community, um, in Cane Bay, we've tragically lost at least three people that, that I know of and Miss Carrie Whitson, who was worked at the elementary school, passed away on January 11th, um, tragically at 41 years old. And her memorial service was right here in this room yesterday. 400 people showed up for that. Um, Grayson Cooper was a kid at the high school right across the street, and um, who tragically took his own life at 16 years old. And um, a guy named David Clark lived around the corner from me in Old Rice Retreat, and he was a young husband, um, 34, who who tragically died at his workplace at the shipyard. You know, none of these people went to our church. Um, But you know what I've seen over the last few weeks is people from our church family visiting hospitals and weeping with families and students and teachers. That's what a church family is supposed to be and do, not just with each other, but with other people who don't have a a church family or who are not a part of our church family. I can't imagine walking through times in my life if I didn't have brothers and sisters like you that show up every time I've moved. It's been people who were part of God's family because sometimes we live far from family. Sometimes our families don't work well and God's family is supposed to show up and stand with us when I've been in the hospital, when we've had kids, when I've been down and out like it's God's, it's my brothers and sisters. And if I didn't have that, man, it would be a lonely place. The church is supposed to be a family where we just stand with each other. Don't hide from that or run from that. Like we need it. Verse 16, Paul says this, live in harmony with one another. 
In other words, he's saying be complimentary. And I don't mean complimentary like give a few compliments. He's saying be complimentary. In other words, in a world where we compare and we compete and we condemn, what if we complimented each other? What if we saw each other as necessary to us? Like the part you play, it doesn't have to be the same part I play. You don't have to sing the same line I sing. You might sing a different line, but guess what? Together, somehow, when we love each other, God knits us into this tapestry, and it's harmonic. It's it's where harmony comes from, and then we're better together than we were by ourselves. Like, that's what harmony is. That's what the family of God is supposed to be. But Paul goes on to say, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. He's just telling us, be humble. And I don't think this is something you can do on your own. I don't think any of this you can do on your own. I think God has to produce this in you. Like, like that, that God, is, God is calling us to a humility that's just so vastly different. He says in a world that's me first, what if we took last place, Jesus said? What, what if we became a servant to everybody else? Like that's what his children do. That's what his family does is we live with humility Instead of seeking our own power and prestige, we seek the glory of God above any glory for ourselves. Like that's what we, that's how we ought to live. Now, I just want you to look at this list. This is what love looks like on display, not just words, but this is what love does. This is what love does. We be encouraging. We're eager to serve. We're joyful and patient and prayerful and generous and kind and sometimes just there. And, and, and we're complimentary to each other and we're humble. Like, I know that we're striving for all that. And that's what I want God to produce in me because you are my brothers and sisters and we need each other. If you, if you were to ask me why I'm a pastor, I would say, one, God called me to do it when I have very different plans for my life. But why do I give my life and my career to this, to the local church? It's, it's because of this. Because I look at the world around us, and it is a lonely, hurting, messed up place. And you know what I realized? And I realized it over the last couple of weeks. That you can be in a big family and be very alone and feel very unloved. You can be in a big school and feel very alone and feel very unloved. You can go to work every day and you can be successful and make lots of money and feel very alone and very unloved. You can live in a community with 12,000 people where we can touch each other's houses and feel very alone and very unloved. The church is supposed to be the one community where we show each other the love of Jesus. Where where we say you are not alone because God never left you and he never will. And he stands with you. Listen, here's the great thing about the family of God, the church. We're not related to each other. I don't have to love you really, but I choose to because you follow Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, then I stand with you. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm called to love you like Jesus loves you. Like that's what I'm supposed to do as I follow Jesus. You know, when I realized that you and I, we can survive without showing love. We can survive without being loved, but we won't really live. We won't really grow. We won't live the life God dreams of us to live. 
That's why, listen, you hear us talk about missional communities. They're just starting back for the semester. You hear us talk about huddles that are just people gathering at coffee shops or back porches or whatever, just a couple of guys or a couple of ladies just reading the Bible and praying for each other. The reason we're so committed to that, the reason we want every person in our church to be in a missional community or huddle is because everybody in our church doesn't need to just attend church. They need to be a part of the family of God where they're loved and accepted and challenged and encouraged and served and where they're called to do the same. Listen, I realize this, that love is risky and it's messy and it's not natural or automatic and it takes work and commitment. It does, but you need it. Don't hide from it or run from it. You need the church and the church needs you. A few other weeks when we started, a few weeks ago when we started this series, I told you that on the night Jesus was arrested, it was a Thursday night, and he had dinner with his closest brothers. They were sharing the Passover meal, and that night he washed their feet, and he shared a meal. And in fact, we're going to do that today. We're going to take communion to celebrate kind of the, the meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. And at that meal, you know, he passed around the, the cup of wine and said, this is my blood that's going to be spilled for you, and this passed around the bread and said, this is my body that's going to be broken for you. And and he was, I don't think they completely got it that night, but he was telling them what was about to happen, that he was going to die for them because greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And Jesus was about to demonstrate how much he loved them. And he was going to save them because of his death. Now, here's the thing. That's why we take communion, to celebrate and thank God and remember what Jesus did for us. But at the end of that meal, and we said this three, four weeks ago, we said what Jesus said at the end of that meal was this. Look at at this verse. He said, and a new command I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. And then look at what the result is by this. All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, that people will know that you follow me by the way you love each other. Now, we talked about that, but get this. I want you to see the context in which Jesus said this because I just said it was the last meal that Jesus shared with them, but don't miss this. You know what just happened before Jesus said these words? One of his closest brothers, one of his closest friends, Judas, had already sold him out. had already ratted him out to turn him over, basically accepted a bribe of money to turn Jesus over to be arrested. And Jesus had just watched him walk out of the room to do what he had to do. And then that's when Jesus says these words about loving one another. Is that crazy? In fact, Jesus also knew a couple other things that were about to happen. That Peter, one of his closest friends and most vocal and passionate followers and disciples, was about to, in just a few hours later, was about to turn his back on Jesus, deny that he ever knew him and walk away. And do you know that everybody else in that room except for one guy was going to run for their lives as well? And in that context, that's where Jesus looks at those guys, that bunch of cowards like me and you, those bunch of people who were about to turn their back on each other and says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to love each other the way I love you. Because I love you. And I'm about to demonstrate it. Now, here's what you're going to do for the rest of your life. You're going to demonstrate how much you love each other. And that's how the world's going to know that you follow me. And guess what? Even though those guys ran that night, they got it. And later on, almost all of them gave their lives for Jesus because they loved him. That's what the family of God is supposed to do. 
that's what the family of God is supposed to be. You know, the interesting thing is, I don't think we can really love each other this way. I don't think we can really love each other genuinely, like Jesus loves us until we've received the love that Jesus has for us. You know what? Get this. The only guy in that room that night that stood with Jesus at the cross when he was crucified, he stood by his mom. You know what guy that was? The guy who wrote these words, John. And, and then look at what he wrote later on in First John. He wrote this. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother who he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. See, I don't think you can love your brother until you've said yes to God's love for you. See, I can't really love you unless I realize and receive God's love for me. See, that something about God's love changes my heart. When I see and recognize and receive the love that Jesus has for me, he changes me. It changes my heart. And maybe you're here this morning and, and maybe, maybe you know, like you're supposed to love and maybe you know about Jesus, but you've never, you've never said yes to Jesus. I know, Jesus, you love me. And maybe you think you're too unlovable. Or maybe you think you don't need it. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. When you say, God, thank you for loving me. Jesus, thank you for dying for me in my place. God, that's more than I ever deserve. And when you receive the love of Jesus somehow. It radically changes you. It saves you. It gives you new life. And then you see people different. You think different. You love different. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray for us. And then after I pray, I'm going to give you the chance to take communion this morning. And there's four tables around the room. And when you go to take a little cup of juice or a little piece of bread, you can take it and back to your seat and just eat it, drink it whenever you want. But it's, it's your way of saying, Jesus, I recognize who you are. And I recognize you came to demonstrate God's love for me. And I receive your love for me. Thank you for changing my life. Thank you for changing my heart. And I will live for you and love you for the rest of my life. And maybe, maybe as you take communion this morning, maybe it's the first time you've ever really done that. I invite you to come. So let me pray for you and then we'll take communion.